0: Sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the purpose of meditation practice. And because there are so many techniques, methods, skillful means, so many teachings, and in particular in the case of the Buddha's teaching, there are so many lists. There are the Four Noble Truths, of course. There are the seven factors of enlightenment there are the five spiritual faculties there are the five hindrances there are the four Brahma Viharas there are the five five uh, reflections for daily life there are the what are there? eight noble eightfold path and with a dizzy with such a dizzying array of lists and teachings, and methods, one can easily forget that the purpose of the practice is to awaken in us uh, the, um, the spirit of freedom and love. It's all about love. There are people who are very technically sound in their meditation practice. There are people that have had many exotic meditative experiences. I've had a lot of experiences. And there have been times in my life where in my uh, forgetfulness about the purpose of practice, I became quite um, enamored with the fact that I'd had many exotic meditation experiences. And in that I would forget the whole purpose of it, not to to elevate the sense of myself as a great yogi or an accomplished reader or studier of the Dharma or a master of techniques, but uh, I had forgotten about whether I'm loving any better, whether I'm more... Uh, whether my heart quivers when I meet someone who's in distress, whether I feel, uh, am able to, in spite of whatever dis-ease may be going on with my, in this case, the last three weeks was bad back, whether I can still feel gratitude, and whether I'm being of any benefit to anybody, whether I'm, how much I'm irritating the people who have to live with me every day, how easy it is to miss that the point of this always revolves around, around uh, whether we're loving well. And in the case of the Buddha, it's clear that the, his awakening, otherwise sometimes described as seeing through the self-illusion, seeing through the illusion of separateness, which is really what happened to him, he sat under the Bodhi tree, like each of us sat under our own Bodhi tree tonight. He sat under the Bodhi tree, and he was met by the very same experiences that you were met with tonight. The sensations in the body, states of mind, the different, the, the different voices of, of Mara, Mara being the personification of the temptations of our mind that say, uh, wouldn't it be better to be doing something else, or should you know? I, I wish I didn't have this. I wish I could become this or that. Or, he was faced with the same voices, the same doubts, the same unworthiness, the same, uh, the same uh, memories and associations, constant obsession with the, with the narrative of self, with the, the. This quickness of that our mind makes conclusions about how it's going and missing the, the suchness of every present moment. So, but he was faced with these things, and he, instead of the, the regular or the habitual tendency to get carried along by the stream of distress and sensations, he started, he woke up and he started paying attention to them. And when he paid attention carefully enough, he saw that everything, absolutely everything that came into his field of awareness, whether it was a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought, he saw that every single thing that he thought, felt, experienced was subject to uh, three Marks. It, there were three marks. This is another list. So this is a good one to remember. It's a good one to realize. Because it's very central in the, in the liberation of the Buddha. And I'll say a little bit later, uh, it's central to the uh, unleashing of our loving heart, our caring heart. So he saw that every experience was marked by change. Everything that had the nature to arise had the nature to pass away. He saw that there was nothing whatsoever in this world of change that could be clung to, that you could cling to and find any kind of reliable sense of happiness. Reliable sense of happiness, not that there weren 't great joys that arose in his mind in fact, before he was able to pay attention in this way, he aroused his uh, his uh, mental strength and he entered into these great states of concentration, but he didn 't let the joy of these overtake him. He let the joy come and go he just he didn't indulge in it instead he just applied that that great power of mind that great presence of mind to paying attention so he saw that everything arises and passes away and he saw that there was nothing whatsoever that could be held on to and if one did if if you did hold on you would get what some one of my teachers called rope burn or you would get you'd suffer we cling And we we suffer. And he saw that there was not anything, because everything had the nature to arise and the nature to pass away, he saw it in such an intimate and microscopic way, he saw that none of it, nothing in his mind or his body, there was nothing that could be taken to be personal, could be taken to be me or mine. Nothing could absolutely define him. And with this, his mind relaxed and stopped grabbing on, stopped grabbing onto the pleasurable experiences that were changing, stopped being so fearful and aversive to the unpleasant experiences that were changing, and he stopped identifying with. He stopped making every single thing that came into his mind, body, into his experience, he stopped making it all about him. He saw the selflessness of everything, how everything was arising according to causes and conditions. Things were coming, arising according to. To influences. What he thought about was influenced by the past things that had been thought about and what his parents had thought about and what his culture was thinking about. His body was arising according to his parents having gotten together, but it, it, his body was also arising and the f- sensations of the body arising according to the elements of earth, air, fire, and water. Not very personal when we call it my body, when we call it me and we call it mine, there is nothing in this body other than the, the relative sense of individuality and separateness, which we, can, we all need to acknowledge. But when he looked very carefully, there was nothing that he could find in himself that truly he could say it was me and my that existed independently from everything else. Everything was interdependent. Everything was marked by that interbeing. Woven into the tap, everything was woven together in the tapestry of life. And so he began to see that there was no separate individuality. Consequently, it, as his heart relaxed, his lens widened beyond that torment of his own internal drama. His own view of himself as such a separate, separate, cut-off individual. You ever feel that way? Separate, that one being who's somehow separate from the flow of life. That's, part of, that's, that's the extreme version of our individuality. There is our individuality, but the edges are a lot softer than we usually make them. But our mind makes us feel like that one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. When, of course, the wave is inherent. It's intrinsically part of the ocean. And so as, his, as these boundaries softened, as he moved from that narrow gravitational field of, of all about me, everything's about me, to this wider circle of being, this wider sense of existence he saw that not only was there no, ultimately, no self existing independently, but there was no other. And as his, lens, as, as his lens widened, and you've probably felt this, when your lens widens, when you come out of the tangle, as Rumi says, when you come out of the tangle of fear-thinking... And live in silence for a while. And as he says, flow down and down in ever-widening rings of being. You too begin to feel this kinship, this connection. This is why when we sit in this little forest that we create every Tuesday, there's a kind of... I at least I feel it—a kind of warmth that just naturally begins to come as I quiet down and I stop. My mind stops separating itself out as much from from all of you, and just let myself feel the elements, the things that I share with you, the the heart space that. And I know that what lives inside of me lives inside of you, and I just start to melt a little bit, and then I slowly start to. I don't want to over-dramatize this, but I start to fall in love. And we all do this when we come out of the tangle of, of me thinking and live in silence. And in the Buddha's case, what he described is what begins to flow naturally and why we practice, why it's so essential that we practice in such a way that we can really unleash this potential within us. He says that, and you can see from your own experience if you've practiced for a while, what begins to flow naturally from a mind that has moved from that narrow vortex to that wider circle of being. What flows naturally is what he called metta or... Uh, a kind of universal uh, loving-kindness, which is ideally at its greatest is very impartial. It doesn't, it's not sentimental. It, it, it uh, expands to feel an equal wish that all beings be happy, be able to feel a, a spontaneous affection a spontaneous caring, a spontaneous wish for all beings to be well. And then as the other, and that's considered that quality of universal loving kindness is considered a divine abode, a, a, a quality that naturally expresses itself when our consciousness is awake and open. It is, it is our divinity, it's our natural, it is, it is the expression of our natural state. And when I say our natural state, it doesn't mean our conditioned state. Our conditioned state is very small and tight and very sentimental. It's, our love is often just, just uh, um, shared with only the nearest and the dearest. But this universal loving kindness is expansive. And of course we start by feeling, hopefully feeling more open and loving toward the people nearest and dearest to us and it's one of the ways that we actually cultivate this. But eventually it expands to include everyone. And as our consciousness comes out of that tangle of me and mine and all about me, uh, we feel uh, we feel the breaking of our hearts when we... Uh, today, uh, now, and I, as soon as I start to talk about compassion, I, I think about something I just read in the paper today about a, a f- uh, family in Mill Valley whose five-year-old son just, uh, along with the other kids in his class, came down with uh, influenza, and this five year old little boy didn 't make it. he died and you know as a parent and as a just another human being that that 's incredibly heartbreaking it 's so easy for all of us when we come out of the tangle of our fear of thinking or our own internal drama to just feel such a resonance with that boy with with that boy's parents, with all, the, with all the people will be affected by that, by that pain. And this, there's, there is so much to open to every day. It can be overwhelming. But as our heart becomes more open, more expansive, our hearts can accommodate a larger circle of compassion. We can bear it a little more. And not to just stop there when our hearts begin to open, when, we, when that unleashing of love happens. And that's the promise of practice. Not only can we respond, our hearts break and quiver in the face of, of suffering and we be able to see that that is the nature of our hearts. We don't have to hide away in fear and dullness, but we can also respond with a great sense of rejoicing when we see someone around us who's happy, who's experiencing good fortune, who's experiencing what the Buddha called mudita, or what we're experiencing is the sense of mudita, or altruistic or sympathetic joy. And as our hearts become wide enough, and your heart right now, even in this room, if you Stop thinking of yourself as a puny little suffering, unworthy, not enough individual. Just let that thought go for a moment. And before the next one comes, just notice how big your heart and mind is. They're one word in Pali and Sanskrit, Chitta. How big how how small is your heart and mind when you don't put any kind of limit of an idea? Is there really any inside or outside any limit any height or depth? Your heart is boundless. Your mind is boundless. It's the same thing. It's completely inclusive. So just let it unfurl your mind for a moment. Just let it. Let it take everyone in this room in. You know, we often think of ourselves as I'm sitting in this room, and that's a conventional understanding I'm sitting in this room, you're sitting in this room, but really, another way of viewing it, perhaps from this this different perspective, is that this room is in me. everyone here is this within the vastness of my own heart mind, so as in, when you're in my mind i'm I may wonder how you got in my mind, but you're here. And I like you being here. I don't want you to go away from my mind. There's room for you here. Try it for a moment. The good news is, with this expanse, this unleashing of love, compassion, and joy... It's not limited to just this uh, this ooey-gooey, warm, cozy uh, love, but it's, but the vastness because it the vastness of your own heart this may sound vague to you right now, but the vastness of your own heart is immovable. It's, it has no it has no limits, so it's, it is the true ground of being, of existence. And by being immovable, it also has within it the very, very useful and important quality. Because it's, we're not just a blank nothing. Even though our minds or our hearts are like the sky... We are filled with consciousness and all the, all the qualities that come with consciousness. That capacity to love, intelligence, compassion, joy. And last but not least, the culmination, the balancing for all those juicy qualities that can break our heart every day. The balancing quality is the quality of equanimity, uh, what's called upeka which allows us to be able to experience the joys and the sorrows without being blown so much, without being drowned in sorrow and, uh, and grief for the pain on earth, and not getting caught in envy and greed when it comes to sharing the connection with people's uh, joy and doesn't fall into this kind of clinging attachment when it comes to love. Equanimity balances that. And this is the... And equanimity is not without love. Equanimity is also a quality of love that is marked by a quality of impartiality. It, it, it's open to everyone, this quality of equanimity. But it's also called grandmotherly love, equanimity. It's that love that can see... that it loves it loves every it loves their like a grandmother loves their child but doesn't interfere too much that knows their kids going to their grandchild is going to do what they do whether whether i like it or not whether you like it or not and it is these qualities these heart qualities of of grandmotherly love balance of equanimity, joy, compassion, love, that is the promise of a heart or a mind that has seen through that self-illusion. And even if we have not seen through the self-illusion, we can every day of our lives, we can arouse these qualities. We can remind ourselves of these qualities because they are unconditioned qualities. They are intrinsic to us. So we need to every day. See, we should ask ourselves, am I loving well today? Am I am I sharing my love with only, only the people who I know really well? Am I how am I dealing with the clerk at the at the corner store how am i dealing with other drivers on the road how am i dealing with myself how am i dealing with with the earth how am i loving well how am i dealing with the suffering that i notice around me am i turning away from it am i shutting down how do i feel about my friend who's happy and f- having great fortune right now can i is my heart able to resonate with their good fortune am i meeting the people in my life with grandmotherly love or am i am i being incredibly reactive and then and then shutting down in in aversion or fear so am i loving well and if i'm not let me incline toward that by wishing others well by reminding myself to Keep opening the doors of perception. Am I feeling, am I getting caught every day in self-absorption? Or am I feeling gratitude? You can cultivate gratitude every day. How many of you have a daily gratitude practice? Anybody? A lot of people were doing that for their 100-day retreat. I think it's probably one of the greatest ornaments to practice as a daily gratitude. Because it's so easy to fall into negativity and complaining, and I, my complaining mind over these last three weeks with a bad back was just shocking, <laughs> and uh, hopefully just for a little bit of, in these last period, and as I've been feeling a little better, it's the gratitude starting to sneak in again, and, but a little gratitude, uh What else? Are you practicing... I think of the things that also help us widen that circle of affection, unleash our love, and one is to practice generosity every day, to give of ourselves, to give our time and our resources, to do what the Buddha said, uh, to have this be a, a central practice in our life, to consider every day the joy The potential for the joy and the sharing of the joy with the thought of giving, the act of giving, the memory of having given, all of that very much uh, unleashing those very unconditional qualities in us, which is just giving and sharing and loving. Let's see. Generosity. Another thing, way of practicing uh, this unleashing of love are we... Are we taking care of each other? Are we causing harm with our speech? Are we causing harm with our bodies? Are we causing ourselves harm and cutting ourselves off with intoxicants? Are we doing livelihood that, that causes us shutting down or fear? Are we, are we acting and working in ways that, that bring harmony and bring connection? These are the things to consider. But it is really all about love. It's not about being a good Buddhist. It's not about being well-read or technically sound in your practice. These are all wonderful things. I think it's, I think if you love the Dharma, love the teachings, love the practices, love mastering the practices, this is a, a great thing. But it's all in behalf of love. It's all behalf of widening our circle of affection. Very easy to forget that. So well, that's all I have to say. Any comments or questions in the last minutes? Please, Kirti. Well, the different forms of gratitude practice, there I I do not know any particular formal uh, gratitude practice other than the ones that I've created myself but there but the encouragement to practice gratitude was right from one of the one of my favorite teachings of the Buddha where he said to the two most rare beings in this world the two most rare beings in this world are those who feel gratitude and those who benefit others so it seems to me it's a very useful thing to if you're if it's not coming spontaneously to begin to plant that seed it's a wonderful use of our conceptual mind to remind ourselves and i personally over the years i've recited probably a thousand times i don't think it's an exaggeration the words of Thoreau and i've shared them with others uh, it's the what he, how he puts it and because and the reason i use this quote is because i feel so what i what he points to is what i feel most grateful for which is this existence this precious human birth etc cetera, etc cetera. but he goes he says it like this i'm grateful for what i am and what i have my thanksgiving is perpetual It's surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite, only a sense of existence. Oh, how I laugh at my vague, indefinite riches, for no run on my bank can drain it, for my wealth is not possession, but enjoyment of being. I'm grateful for what I am and what I have. My thanksgiving is perpetual. It's surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite, only a sense of existence. For no run on my bank can drain it, for my wealth is not possession but enjoyment of being. So every day to remember just the... Appreciation for existence—not the idea of myself or the idea of existence, but the felt experience of being here. And then, I've been since I had my back. Sometimes gratitude by comparison is, even though it's the not the highest kind of gratitude, when I go to the chiropractor that I've been going to since I hurt my back I run into someone who my wife worked for a chiropractor who my wife worked for 25 years ago who I also used to see as a chiropractor and he has since had uh, several strokes he is uh, he is I forgot the word legally blind he is uh, his situation is very challenging, but every day he's he's there working his his um, his body he's he's learning how to compensate and see and he gets around and when I thought about my little my little bourgeois problem in my back. It's, you know, it was, it's been painful, I have to admit. It's been really uncomfortable. But when I put that in perspective, what some people experience, I'm grateful for, this, for the mildness of this particular um, kind of dukkha, and that at least presently I'm not experiencing that. And we, I may, who knows? But I'm grateful for the... It just makes me, It makes me grateful... And that's not, like I said, it's not the best kind of, the comparing mind is not the best kind of way of thinking of gratitude. But it reminds me not to just get caught in my complaining mind and just start being thankful for what I do have and not for what I don't. Uh, So I don't really know things other than what what you would create on your own what many people have done in dharma circles though are to have a dharma buddy who they a gratitude buddy who you check in with write a note every day what you're grateful for they write and even when there's not a lot just just to try to do it is it tends to really change your attitude and we need to change our attitude please invoke 10 things that you feel grateful for right then meaning right before what before you go out to your day stop and and reflect on 10 things that you're grateful for beautiful thank you patricia Thank you. Say thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 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 Beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for you. No, that's beautiful. Please, Tanya. Beautiful. Thank you. Before you go to sleep, say, give thanks. So I think that's the time that we have right now. I just want to read something from D.H. Lawrence to close. Oh, what a catastrophe! What maiming of love when it was made a personal, merely personal thing, taken away from the rising and the setting of the sun and cut off from the magic connection of the solstice and equinox. This is what is the matter with us. We're bleeding at the roots because we are cut off from the earth and the sun and the stars and love is a grinning mockery because poor blossom, we plucked it from its stem on the tree of life and expected it to keep on blooming in our civilized vase on the table. So unleash your love. Share it with everyone. We do have a very short announcement from Andrea and thank you for your attention. May our practice be for the welfare and benefit of all beings.
1: Just have three things. First one is that how we will lead a insight meditation day long at Spirit Rock on March 26th. Is that a Sunday or Saturday or Sunday? Saturday. Saturday. Thank you. Saturday, March 26th at Spirit Rock. And if you've never been up there, I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful, magical place um second next week is our uh, monthly happiness hour our social event uh, we call it happiness hour and or bring your own burrito night. Uh, We used to have a food vendor come, but she has recently moved to Chicago. So we're looking for new food vendors, but until then, uh, you can bring your own food, uh, buy a burrito in the area, come, get to know your fellow Sangha sangha members. In the last two and a half years that I've been coming, I've met more people on these uh, Wednesday night social events on the third Wednesday of every it's Tuesday, <laughs> the Tuesday night, the third Tuesday of every month, I met more people on those social events, those social event, event nights than uh, in the previous two years. So it's a really great way to meet people. Um, and finally, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Donna. And this evening I was listening to a talk by Thich Han, uh, talking about Sangha. And I was reflecting on how much I appreciate the Sangha On days that I'm really stressed out and things are really difficult at work, this place is... The Sangha is a refuge for me. And it allows me to let everything that's been stressful, difficult in my life kind of settle. And on the days that I'm happy and celebrating, I get to come here and it's kind of like having a party with all of you. So it's such a, a wonderful thing to have Sangha. It's really amazing that we have so many people, 90 to 100 people, come together to hear the teachings and... Uh, we're here largely because we have such a wonderful teacher who uh, presents the, the teachings in such a unique and joyous way. And we're so fortunate to have Howie with us. And. Um, if you would like to express your gratitude for the Sangha and for Howie, uh, you can do that in several ways. Um, you can financially support the Sangha and Howie uh, through the PayPal account, which is on the Mission Dharma website, missiondharma.org. You can give a check to the church, uh, which would be tax deductible, and that will help pay our rents, which is $150 every week. And um, you can also, easiest way is probably just to put money or over on the organ bench And um, that money goes to pay the rent to help Howie and also to pay for things for the sangha, uh, like tea and new cushions. So um, it's a way to express your appreciation for everybody who comes and to keep the sangha going and to support each other. So thank you so much. Have a beautiful evening. And we'll see you all next week for the Happiness Hour. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you, Andrea. Anyway, thanks for your practice. And please... uh be mindful as you drive. sweet. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.